Welcome to Alternative Fund Insight, exploring the trends and meeting the personalities driving hedge funds and private markets. My name is Will Wainwright, and this week I'm joined by Mark Rubenstein, the former Lansdowne hedge fund manager turned financial author, whose insider's take on the industry has an audience of thousands in Mayfair, Manhattan and other hedge fund hubs. This episode is brought to you in association with Scale Global Summit, held from May 22nd to 25th at the Bellagio in Las Vegas. Join the world's most influential investors, entrepreneurs and thought leaders to shape the future of capital, innovation and the global economy. AFI is proud to be a knowledge partner of the event. Head to scaleglobalsummit.com for more information and details on how to attend. Our second industry partner for this episode is the Independent Research Forum, helping investors throughout the hedge fund industry meet expert providers. Head to independentresearchforum.com for more information. And remember, AFI membership is here, an essential tool for professionals in alternatives. Discover a new world of alternative investment news, research and business intelligence tools. Sign up to access our flagship research piece, The Power List, and our proprietary people move and hedge fund launch and closure tools, which are already helping service providers across the industry. To today's guest, Mark Rubenstein, a portfolio manager who spent a decade with Lansdowne Partners on their financial strategy in London and is now opening up the industry as a financial author with his weekly Substack newsletter, Net Interest. We discuss the outlook for the industry, how it has changed since he started out in the pre-08 era, the rise of multi-strategy funds and much more. Mark, thank you for joining me on AFI today. I wanted to talk to you about one of your recent pieces, which generated a lot of interest and comments within the hedge fund industry, titled, So You Want to Launch a Hedge Fund. Can I start by asking you what prompted you to write it? Firstly, thanks for having me, Will. Um, As I alluded to in that piece, I used to be part of a team that managed a hedge fund. We were part of the Lansdowne Global Financials Fund which it was launched in 2004. I joined in 2006. I wound it up in 2016. Having left the industry in 2016, I'm often asked, is it something I want to return to? And I just thought I'd get my thoughts down on paper. So that's what prompted it. So much has changed in the industry um, since you uh, joined Lansdowne in, in 2006. It's a different environment now. Things are structured differently. So how do, how do you view things now? The industry has changed. The art of investing hasn't, but the package that one constructs around that, the way one institutionalizes that, has changed. Actually, I was listening to another podcast recently. It was David Einhorn was being interviewed, Mm. and he launched back in 1996 and was asked a similar question. Obviously, a very successful manager. Would he if he was to choose between launching in 1996, as he did, and launching in 2023, which one would he choose? And he, perhaps unsurprisingly, chose 1996 and had a a list of reasons for why it was just harder now. Some of the reasons I go into in my piece, harder now to raise money, harder to keep that money, harder to generate fees off that money, compared to the past. 
but there are yeah. also coming back to the art of investing there are also just the, certainly from a long short perspective it is difficult now given the easy access of information that everybody has given the uh, easy access of analyzing that information um, various proprietary techniques that people had historically uh, just have been democratized yeah. uh, and so just the ability to differentiate oneself as an investor uh, is just a lot harder now than it used to be a lot of people go back to the noughties as the, the heyday for long short equity in the years running up to the crisis um was that the case? You know, what what is different in terms of the market dynamic between now and back then? So I would split that up into two elements. Um, one, which is pertinent to me personally, in the sense that I was part of a team that managed exclusively a financials fund. We mm. chose one sector uh, within the broader market, which in the mid 2010s um, in the mid 2000s was a very big sector, 20% uh, approaching 20% of the overall market. Mm. Um, but in particular, and critical for the um, cr critical for the hedge fund model, there wasn't that much correlation within the various constituents of that sector. So we could go long one geography, one subsector, short another geography another subsector, um, and, and that was a viable business model. Yeah. What happened subsequently is that correlations rose um, for a variety of reasons. Actually, uh, and this extends to other sectors as well, because interest rates were driven down towards zero. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for financials in particular, that was a, a key influence on eliminating um, that degree of uh, uncorrelation, if you like, or, or, or enforcing correlations up towards one. Uh, and that made it very difficult uh, to construct a long short book. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's specific to financials. Obviously, outside of financials, we have seen um, a lot of the pressures are on short books and a lot of funds, including the flagship fund of my former firm, um, uh, abandon uh, the, the short selling strategy uh, yeah. and, and, and reduce, in some cases, even close their short books. Um, there's been a lot of commentary around that. Um, and then, I mean, I, I mean, on shorting specifically, obviously, you know, the, the, the decade that we had after the crisis was a very difficult time for short sellers. It, it was a bull market environment. So, you know, was, was that the main factor, do you think, behind the, the reduction in shorting? Yes, I think so. I think so. It was. It, I think so. I think that's right. Very, very hard. Um, I've written another piece uh, in my newsletter about short selling. Um, it was. I wrote a piece about about the about about the art of, about short about the art of short selling. Mm. Um, uh, it, it, it's kind of well known how, how difficult it is. The maths of it are clearly very difficult. A short from a risk management perspective, uh, a short uh, grows when it goes against you, whereas a long kind of has an inbuilt risk management mechanism. Mm -hmm. If it goes against you, it, it shrinks. Um, difficult to manage that. It's difficult to, there are disclosure requirements, which didn't exist uh, in the mid 2000s uh, around shorting, uh, yep. which uh, a lot of people 
a lot of investors don't want to um, publicize what their short books are. And there's a requirement to do that with a lower bar than would be the case on the long side, particularly in Europe, uh, including in the UK. Mm. So various factors that make it uh, make it more difficult. Um, not least the fact that, as I say, interest rates were also zero. So there was a degree to which you weren't getting paid for it um, yeah. just on a financing side. Yeah. And before we go back to the, the launch environment and you know running a hedge fund, on shorting specifically, there is more talk about a better opportunity set. Is that something that you buy into now? You know, no one's expecting the, the, the stock market to take off over the next few years as it did after the financial crisis. Do you think there is a good outlook now or do you think there's still quite a lot of risk? I think, look, I think, I think there's always scope to do uh, shorting within the broader market, clearly. Um, stocks will go up and stocks will go down. So the, the the rationale for shorting and crafting a risk management strategy around that is very compelling. Um, and it's a very specialized skill. So uh, the value, uh, I think, to be able to do that properly in a properly risk managed institutional uh, basis, there is a very, very good um argument why 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 that will continue and clearly you know with markets not going up to the degree they were in 2020 and 21 um there is going to be increasing scope to do that so i i think i, I think i think it's a very valuable skill uh, and i think um it will return um there's a kind of cyclical component to it from a business perspective and the tailwind is behind it right now Okay, so going back to the the pros and cons of starting and running your own fund, costs are higher now. There's been a reduction in fees over the years. As we've discussed, the performance environment has made it difficult too. And there's a massive new trend, not new, but it's increasingly prominent in the industry and in the industry conversation. And that is the rise of the multi-strats, the multi-PM products, the pod shops, as they're called. What do you make of that trend becoming just so prominent over the years? It's interesting. I think it's to me, it looks like an evolution of the fund of funds model, which was prominent before the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, multi-strategy funds, I kind of make the point in the piece. There's an argument they shouldn't really exist any more than a conglomerate should exist in the stock market in the sense that a end investor can replicate what a conglomerate offers uh, and similarly what a multi-strategy fund offers themselves mm. uh, they can they can create a portfolio of positions uh, in underlying hedge funds which which replicate which reduce volatility provide diversification to the same extent that a multi-strategy firm does in-house um however there is huge value in reducing volatility i think it's an understat i think it's something that is missed often in the academic literature that the uh whether it's an allocator or uh, an investor uh, directly in the stock market uh, places a premium on reducing volatility actually you see it right now in the allocations that have been going towards private equity uh, yeah in the sense that there is a premium not to have to see a mark 
every day or every quarter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Part of the appeal for the Blackstone private real estate trust, income trust, is that it, it is it marks real estate um, on a uh, frequency not as high as a uh, publicly traded REIT would. Yeah. And people, some investors see the benefit of that. And do you think that that reduction in volatility that the uh, that the multi-strats you know offer is is that the secret sauce in terms of likening it to fund of funds? You know, as as you say, you know, the end investor, you know, could go with a fund of fund approach. Um, they're going to be high fees, but actually, multi-strats charge quite fees um, on average. So, is it is is that their key offering? Do you think? Partly, I think it's the consistency of the returns li- linked to a reduction in volatility. I think as well, may I think as well, there's something to be said for, to a degree, I'm discounting a little bit, but there is something to be said for the asset allocation that goes on within that. So one of the problems with the traditional hedge fund model is that money will often flow into the strategy at exactly the wrong point in the life cycle of that strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wrote another piece um, a couple of years ago now called Zuckerman's Curse, which refers to the author. Um, He wrote a book about, um, the the author uh, Zuckerman, he wrote a book about uh, Renaissance capital. Previously, he'd written a book about, uh, I think it was called The Greatest Trade Ever, about John Paulson. And what was, was interesting, John Paulson actually successfully raised a lot of capital in order to short subprime in 2006. Mm. But then he raised a lot more subsequent to that and was never able to generate an adequate return on that. And yeah, yeah. Uh, people famously will look at time-weighted returns versus money-weighted returns. Often, and actually not enough emphasis is placed on money-weighted returns. The point being that funds are able to... Uh, leverage their success in order to raise more money and will often do that um, such that they're raising money uh, after a period of high success, which they're not able to replicate. The great thing about the multi-strategy fund is they're able to allocate internally uh, and uh, adjust for that. So opportunities can be seen ex ante, uh, capital can be allocated without having to go out and market that strategy. Um, can be allocated ex ante to that strategy, uh, and 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 that can be done in real time as well. Another of the issues with the traditional hedge fund model is there's a lag because the 90 day redemption notice period mm. uh, to the to which capital can be allocated as dynamically as can occur within the multi strategy model. So there is a premium for that as well. So I think all of those things. I think consistency of returns. Yeah. I think um, minimization of drawdowns and management of volatility but also that ability ex ante to yeah. allocate capital to where the opportunities are. And that's a really interesting point because, you know, in some ways that's taking the asset allocation decision out of the hedge fund allocators control. Someone might say, well, they should be the ones, you know, choosing into which strategies they go. But there's actually been quite a lot of commentary out of allocators saying, you know, they are, they like the multi-strats because they do make those decisions. Um, and I guess that loss of control is something that is made up for by the fact that the likes of Citadel are very good at deciding where to allocate and how it should look. Yes, precisely. 
Okay, I think now is quite a good point to bring in a quote that is in your piece from Dmitry Baliazny, founder of Baliazny Asset Management. So he's one of the main US multi-strat founders. Um, the multi-strat sector makes up 15% of AFI's new power list of managers running $10 billion or more, and that amount is only growing. And he says the origins of multi-strats goes back to his origins as a trader and thinking about how to build out business around trading. It makes sense to have lots of different types of risk takers because you have less correlation. You can attack different areas, the markets, and have specialists in different areas. So that's the asset allocation point, the risk management point. A big question about the rise of the multi-strats is what could bring it down? What do you see as the main risk to this growth? Well, I suppose it comes back to, I mean, I guess correlation. I mean, correlation is ultimately what brings down um, any kind of leveraged uh, investment model. Hmm. Um, And in this case, there is a, uh, there is, um, so correlation could bring it down. Now, but to a degree, we've actually stress tested that. Maybe during COVID is probably the harshest stress test that the model could have faced uh and in most cases in most cases probably well i'm thinking possibly in all cases that was that that was weathered now the counter argument to that might be government liquidity measures um, diminished the degree to which that was a true stress test not just for the multi-strap model but for any kind of investment model or any model in financial services Mm. um but so but that would be the thing i would look that would be the thing i would i would would look at i would look out for yeah yeah Um, and and, you know the high leverage is something that people point to an an awful lot with the with the multi-strats you know their risk management has to be very very good um is is that something that you would you would highlight yes yes uh that that yes that's that that is right um i guess for an outsider it's often difficult to see what the leverage is yeah. Um, but, but, uh, but, 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 but yes, yes, that, yeah, yes, that is right. And, and I, actually another point, I suppose, to the extent to which there is a limit on growth here, um, yeah. which is true, kind of any strategy can be, um, harvested, uh, when it's, and the success often comes, uh, when these strategies are small, you know, I kind of mentioned before the, Often the um, I talked about Zuckerman's curse and this notion that 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 size often is the enemy of sound performance. Now these models are a bit more scalable than maybe a traditional hedge fund because they operate over multiple strategies. But at some point there will be a capacity constraint. A lot of these firms are growing. They are growing very quickly. They are replicating what each other does to a degree and there might be the market's clearly very big but there might be some capacity constraint when they all hit a certain size we haven't seen that yet but that's something else to watch out for yeah yeah of course it's interesting when you start a hedge fund you have responsibility for the operations for the asset raising and the asset raising in particular is quite a big burden if you're used to being at a bigger firm where there's a separate department taking care of investor relations etc so that's something that if you're just running a pod at a multi-strat 
um, you don't have to worry about so much. And we've actually seen some quite successful launches in recent years choose to close down their own firms to join multi-strats, which I think shows the, the power of the model. If you were looking to start running money again now, do you prefer the idea of running um, a pod within one of these firms or starting up your own thing? I think I, I, so I, I think I think I think I think I think a pod is very compelling. I think the uh, the ability to they're just different skills. The, the the art of managing a portfolio is a very different skill from managing a business. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some overlap. I know, you know Warren Buffett famously says he is a better investor be, by being a businessman, and and he's a better businessman by being an investor. Mm-hmm. Um, other great investors have. Um, proven themselves to be very, very good business managers and vice versa. But it's a rare skill to be able to do both. They're very, very different skills, particularly in a very marketing-driven environment. Mm -hmm. And so the recognition of that, that an investor recognizes that, clearly, on the one hand, it's almost this ambition to put one's name above the door uh, and and to create a, a legacy which you can't really do uh, in a pod environment, but pulling that to one side, just the ability to focus on the investing, um, acknowledge what you as an investor are are good at and and not do the marketing, be provided with infrastructure, because this is the other point, the race, the arms race around infrastructure is is rising. And so the ability to benefit from the scale of a platform and not have to worry about infrastructure in addition to marketing, pretty compelling. Um, and as you say, people are making the switch increasingly, and it kind of feels like unless you have a very, very good franchise. I mean, there are, look, I put this piece out, and there was a bit of backlash from mm-hmm. small managers managing certainly sub-100, in many cases sub-50, million dollars saying you know it's fine it works it works for us we can reduce costs there are outsourcing providers service providers available we can uh we we, we can access uh, low-cost prime brokerage we can run the business out of a, uh, a shared office space or, or even uh, kind of a home office now Mm. in the era of working from home we don't have to be in new york we don't have to be in mayfair and that's fine that works and there always in any industry i'm not denying in any industry there are small there's a tail Uh, there are small mom and pops there's a tail but the ability to do that and run institutional money rather than friends and family or high net worth institutional money endowment money pension money is kind of diminished yeah Um, and i think if that is the kind of money you want to attract uh, and retain and not have to worry about marketing it, retaining it, then the pod model is very compelling. And this is um, looking forward at where the new hedge fund launches, the next generation of startups is is coming from. And this might go to your um, point about capacity constraints is, you know, the most exciting and closely watched launches at the moment are coming from the world of multi-strats. You know, they are either pods um a lot of them actually from from citadel quite high, high profile and attracting interest that are choosing to uh, start under their own steam um and there's even talk about um bobby jane of uh, millennium you know potentially exploring his own firm which which could be a large multi-strat offering so i guess that just shows that 
this part of the industry is only growing because it's both hedge funds looking to join and also the really successful multi-strat managers looking to start up their own thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And one of the things I did in this piece was go back and look at the growth of Millennium, which has grown. The number of teams is now 300. Um, number of employees is uh, uh, approaching 5,000. Uh, compared with just five years ago, uh, there were uh, teams of 200 uh, and, empl- and, and half the number of employees of today. Uh, and that's being replicated across all of these, uh, all, all of these, all, all of these multi, multi, multi-strategy firms. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the growth is clearly evident. Um, and right now, the model is working. Yeah. And final question: What is the outlook for the hedge fund industry now? Is it still an exciting place to be? Are they still raising money? What do your old contacts in the industry tell you? Yeah. Look, again, it's not. It's not so. It's not black and white. Uh, there are successful differentiating between invest investing and the business of running a hedge fund there is going to be scope for good investors to uh, not just make a living but do extremely well wherever they are whether they're running as i say before sub 50 million out of the spare bedroom in their home or uh, or, or, or multiple multiples of that mm. um, but there's no getting away from the business of running a hedge fund is more difficult as fees go down as compliance costs go up, as infrastructure costs go up, as it gets more competitive, um, there's no getting away from that. And so it is uh, more difficult to run these models than than it was before. And the ability, interestingly, to launch a new, I talk a little bit about Marshall Waste in the piece, obviously UK-based success story, now yeah. running $60 billion. And I quote, Paul Marshall a few times in the piece, um, but it's difficult to conceive of another. Again, maybe this comes back to the David Einhorn quote about twenty twenty three versus nineteen ninety six. Difficult to conceive of a business of that size being launched again today. Safe to say, you are quite happy in your new career as a financial author. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, you know, I'm sitting. I'm the critic now, sitting and uh, sitting in the <laughs> arena uh, on, on on the sidelines. But you know, I've been in the arena in the past, so hopefully, what I say has a bit more credibility than it would do otherwise. Yeah, good stuff. Well, you've certainly got a big audience, and your pieces are generating a lot of interest in the industry. So uh, that was a really fascinating discussion, Mark. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Thank you to Mark. If you haven't already, head to netinterest.co to discover his superb newsletter. Please follow AFI on LinkedIn and sign up to our free newsletter if you haven't already. That's it for now. Until next time on AFI.